Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is the opening chapters of Intellectual Schizophrenia, Culture, Crisis, and Education by R.J. Rushdoony. Listen to the full book as well as the rest of the Rushdoony collection on Canon Plus. Forward, year 2002 edition. When this brilliant and prophetic book was first published in 1961, the Christian homeschool movement was years away and hardly considered a viable educational alternative. But the book was a resolute call to arms for Christians to get their children out of the pagan public schools and provide them with a genuine Christian education. And Dr. Rishduni provided more than convincing reasons why this call had to be made. The moral and spiritual health of millions of Christian children were at stake, as well as the future of religious freedom in America. Indeed, the very future of Christianity in America was at stake, for if the children of Christians were not educated to preserve and defend their faith, its influence in our culture would diminish to nothing. Had more Christians heeded Dr. Rushduni's urgent call, many children would have been saved from the moral and intellectual depredations of the government school system. But some did heed the call, with the results that many new Christian day schools were established. After his later book, The Messianic Character of American Education, was published in 1963, Dr. Rushdoony organized many Christian school seminars in Southern California in the late 60s and early 70s. At the same time, beyond public notice, some pioneering Christians began, slowly but surely, to build a homeschool movement that has changed the face of Christian education in America. It was Dr. Rushdoony's incisive indictment of secular humanist education that convinced Christian parents of the urgent need for Christian education. The establishment of many new Christian day schools preceded the development of the homeschool movement, which reflected Dr. Rushdoony's emphasis on the reconstruction of the Christian family in conformity with the education principles enunciated in Deuteronomy 6. These early homeschooling pioneers abandoned the public schools in order to create a truly Christian concept of education based on the needs and dynamics of the family. Dr. Rushdoony had predicted that the humanist system, based on the anti-Christian premises of the Enlightenment, could only get worse, and he was correct. Today, more than four million children, no doubt many Christians among them, are drugged each day in order to attend government schools. And Christian children have actually been targeted for murder in schools where satanic massacres have taken place. In addition, never has American literacy been lower than it is today due to a deliberate policy among secular progressive educators to dumb down the nation. Teaching methods designed to produce reading disability and dyslexia pervade primary education with the results that millions of young Americans leave school unable and unwilling to read because it has been made so difficult and painful for them. Dr. Rushdoony was indeed a prophet. As a Calvinist theologian, he knew that education divorced from God and from all transcendental standards would produce the educational disaster and moral barbarism we have today. He was a realist who knew it was impossible to compromise with an evil system that could never serve the needs of Christians, even though most Christian ministers were willing to support the public schools to the detriment of their own communities. And that is why they were so critical of him for sounding the alarm. 
They preferred not to rock the establishment boat, and they preferred not to offend the local school superintendent or school board members in their congregation. And that is why so many Christian families acted independently and began to homeschool their children in accordance with biblical principles. Today, just about every state in the Union has a large and powerful Christian homeschool organisation, thanks to the teachings and encouragement of Dr. Rushduni. He eagerly defended Christian day schools and homeschoolers in courts throughout the country, establishing legal precedents in favour of parental rights in education and religious freedom. In courtroom after courtroom, Dr. Rushduni spoke in his clear, blunt style, asserting the sovereignty of God over the usurped sovereignty of the state. The Calvinist message was clear. God ruled over family, church and state, and all three institutions were obliged to serve the divine sovereign. In addition, the family preceded both church and state and therefore had a stronger institutional claim to God's protective authority than the other two social entities. The title of this book is particularly significant in that Dr. Rushdoney was able to identify the basic contradiction that pervades a secular society that rejects God's sovereignty but still needs law and order, justice, science and meaning to life. Secular man wants to use the things of creation while denying their creator. As Dr. Rushdoney writes, quote, There is no law, no society, no justice, no structure, no design no meaning apart from God, end quote. And so, modern man has become schizophrenic. He wants to assert his autonomy while rejecting the divine order that gives meaning to life. To the humanist, the aim of living is something he calls the good life. For the nihilist, it is violence and death. Dr. Rushduni saw cultural schizophrenia as a split between thought and feeling a withdrawal from the reality of God and a flight into fantasies of world government achieved through an unattainable unity. Utopians are undeniably schizophrenic. They want heaven on earth, which can only be achieved by coercion and enslavement. But perhaps what they really want, as depraved human beings, is coercion and enslavement and use utopian idealism to deceive and entrap the gullible. Nor is it by accident that the government schools now lavish so much time on death education, which has become marbleized throughout the curriculum. As Dr. Rushduni writes, quote, For man to turn his back on God, therefore, is to turn towards death, end quote. And this is exactly what the government schools have done. Add to this multiculturalism, transcendental meditation, sensitivity training, explicit sex education, drug education, evolution, behavioural psychology, humanism, whole language and other such programmes, and you get a curriculum that is so profoundly anti-Christian that one wonders how any Christian parent or minister can condone putting a child in a government school. If Dr. Rushduni was a prophet, he was also an optimist. Thus, he founded the Christian Reconstruction Movement in 1965 in order to provide Christians with a vision of ultimate victory, similar to what the pilgrims and Puritans had when they arrived on these shores in the 17th century, determined to build the city of God in the wilderness. And it is that vision that has distinguished America from any other nation on earth. 
America is considered a religious nation because, despite its pervasive secular culture, there is a kind of agnostic belief in God's protection and providence, as evidenced by the spiritual fervor that Americans expressed after the destruction of the two World Trade Center towers on September 11, 2001, and the murder of 3,000 or so Americans by Islamic terrorists in the towers, the hijacked planes, and at the Pentagon. The war between Christians and secular humanists has now been overshadowed by the war between Islam and Christianity. There is in this country a large body of Americans who genuinely adhere to biblical principles and values. You meet them at homeschool conventions, in Bible-centered churches, in Bible study groups, at Christian conferences, and at colleges and schools where Orthodox Christianity is taught. In other words, there is more Christianity in America today than anywhere else on earth. As Dr. Rushdoony would no doubt say that this is only the beginning. He died in February 2001 after having served over 60 years in God's service, knowing that the Christian homeschool movement which he had nourished with his philosophy and lectures had achieved critical mass and would become a cultural force of great spiritual power and influence in the future. Samuel L. Blumenfeld, May the 8th, 2002 Preface The purpose of this study has not been either the criticism or praise of the schools as such, but the understanding of the schools and their basic philosophy as cultural manifestations. The era now rapidly drawing to an end has had, as one of its most characteristic cultural products and agencies, the state-sponsored school. An assessment of the school's role, a criticism and some appreciation of it, has been attempted. In most civilizations, the intimations of immorality are an essential part of the cultural experience. It is believed that man has finally arrived, and the true and final forms of expression at last manifested. Only development and fulfillment remains, and a change of premises is seen as anarchy or chaos. In the temper of modernity especially, men are more apt to believe, quote, wisdom was born with us, end quote, than to reckon soberly that, quote, wisdom may die with us, end quote, or at our hands. An examination of premises is therefore of paramount importance in terms of future potentialities. The state schools and their philosophy are decisive and important aspects of a now faltering and waning culture, and they are a very present power. As long as their culture endures, they will endure and prosper, but they cannot outlast their particular premises and culture. Accordingly, this writer has no quarrel with those who work for the furtherance or improvement of the state schools or teach therein, nor with the critics of these schools. The intended perspective is cultural rather than intercedent. Most certainly a person should not be buried before his death, but neither should his immortality be presumed because of his present survival. The signs of a coming change of cultural premises must be recognised, but the present realities must still be lived with. Man cannot live as a creature of tomorrow, but to be bound by the present is to live in terms of past victories and present defeats. Portions of this book were first delivered as lectures to the Christian Teachers Association of the Northwest on October the 15th and 16th, 1959, at Linden, Washington. The Board of Directors of the Association, 
without applying agreement, felt the lectures of sufficient relevance to merit wider attention and debate, and they accordingly requested their publication. The lectures were, as a result, expanded to include issues developed in discussions, smaller gatherings and correspondence. The author is indebted to Principal and Mrs. Mark van der Ark of Linden for their gracious hospitality and their congeniality to the discussions in their home that extended beyond midnight. William N. Blake, then President of the Association, gave every kindness and help possible to the author and graciously provided specific data regarding Christian schools. A more personal note is necessary. I believe in the necessity of more emphasis on education and scholarship, but especially within the institutional church. No greater tragedy characterizes the current scene, especially in the United States, than the retreat of scholarship from the pulpit to the school. Accordingly, in the last two centuries, Christian scholarship, theology and philosophy have been academic in their orientation. Such an orientation is definitely necessary, but the vitality and relevance of Christian thought has been largely lost. It is significant that the modern Calvinist reawakening stems from Abraham Cooper, very definitely a man actively linked with the problems and life of his day. I have accordingly believed that the pulpit is the place for Christian scholarship and philosophy. In that faith, I have been actively supported and furthered by the members and officers of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church of Santa Cruz, California, and for their love, prayers, and support, I am deeply grateful. Two of the appendices, Academic Freedom and The Menace of the Sunday School, first appeared in Torch and Trumpet, the publication of the Reformed Fellowship. RJR, Santa Cruz, California, 1961 Introduction Mr. Rushduni has written a trenchant, compact and uncompromising Christian response to the cultural crisis. This book is the work of a vigorous, independent and logical mind. No reader's toes, I dare say, will remain wholly untrampled, which is precisely what we would demand of a writer who professes to, quote, speak to our condition, end quote. The crisis of our culture comes into one of its focal points in education, and this is the author's point of entry into the problem. It is a contention of this book that education, in the fullest sense of the word, is inescapably Christian education. The term, quote, secular education, end quote, in the author's view, brings together ideas which are at least anomalous, if not downright contradictory. Mr. Rushduni, it is obvious from this arresting assertion, does not here offer just one more amiable discussion about conditions in our schools. His book is a trenchant criticism of the contemporary educational theory and practice, whose shortcomings he measures against the demands of the Christian revelation. Culture is religion externalised, and our culture bears the imprint of its moulding by Christianity. We were Christendom before we began thinking of ourselves as Europe or the West. The hallmarks of this faith stamp themselves even on our rebellion against it, for every rejection or denial implies something positive against which the reaction occurs. The positive things in our culture have been Christian things, or the things of Christian cultivation. T.S. Eliot has said somewhat the same thing in The Idea of a Christian Society, 
There are some, he observes, who say, quote, that a society has ceased to be Christian when religious practices have been abandoned, when behavior ceases to be regulated by reference to Christian principle, end quote. But there is another way of looking at the matter. Quote, the other point of view, which is less readily apprehended, is that a society has not ceased to be Christian until it has become positively something else. It is my contention that we have today a culture which is mainly negative, but which, so far as it is positive, is still Christian. I do not think that it can remain negative, because a negative culture has ceased to be efficient in a world where economic, as well as spiritual forces, are providing the efficiency of cultures which, even when pagan, are positive. And I believe that the choice before us is between the formation of a new Christian culture and the acceptance of a pagan one. End quote. London, 1939-13. The word pagan usually connotes an innocent, carefree child of nature. This kind of thing is hardly a live option for modern man and presumably is not what Eliot has in mind. Christianity's chief antagonist for the past two centuries has been this secular faith of the Enlightenment and a perverse form of it is the main contender today. In its early phrases, there was something attractive about this faith, but its reactionary phrase during this century, it has spawned an idolatrous status cult manifesting itself now as communism and again as various dilutions of Marxism. Communism is one version of environmentalism, the notion that a man's character is made for him and not by him. Improve his material circumstances and you change man for the better. Education under this dispensation is the sum total of efforts to adapt man to his surroundings. Should the educated man be adjusted to his environment? Adjustment is the aim, as many educationists see it. Some of them narrow the concept of the environment down to the social group and recommended that schooling be a process of merging the man into the mass. These theories have not gone unchallenged. Man, say the opponents of environmentalism, has the capacity to respond creatively to his environment and surpass it. And the group, they point out, may exhibit norms that are warped or vicious. Accommodation to these is debasing. The environmentalists return to the fray by asking their critics if the aim of education, then, is to produce maladjusted products. It is not, obviously, but at this point the argument runs aground because both parties accept too limiting a notion of what constitutes man's environment. As the term is commonly used, environment refers to the world of time and space, the world of things, the physical frame within which man struggles to survive. No Christian can accept so narrow a definition of environment. His natural habitat is the universe of time and space, but he is also environed by another dimension. Eternity. This dimension has dropped out of contemporary life. The modern outlook does not include it, with the result that multitudes of people no longer feel a sense of life as participation in a cosmic adventure. They have come to believe that the world of things which can be seen, felt, measured and tested is man's sole habitat. Belief in the reality of things not seen has dimmed or disappeared. We are living, so the French writer André Malraux tells us, in quote, the first agnostic civilization, end quote, 
this charge or description is all too true? It is a fundamental assumption, unconsciously presupposed in our time, and thus more a mood than a premise, that man is a creature of the natural order only. It was the evil genius of Karl Marx to seize upon this mood and make it explicit. Communism today offers a godless religion and a this-worldly salvation, a caricature or parody point-by-point of Christianity. And one has the uneasy feeling that many people, now on the fence, would go communist, except for an inertia which prevents them from following their premises to the bitter end. We are living, some have suggested, in the post-Christian era. Our outlook is, in general, man-centred, secularist and utopian. It is materialistic and rationalistic. It uses majority decision as its criteria of right. It asserts a false individualism as against natural associations, such as the family and intimate community groupings. And then it turns to nationalism as the principle of social cohesion. There are very few new truths, but there are always lots of new errors, and these are some which have gained acceptance during recent centuries. The axioms now widely taken for granted are largely 18th and 19th century products, and they are alien to the Christian and humanist tradition. But even though they seem more deeply entrenched than ever in the popular mentality, they have already come under fire from some of the more discerning minds. The acids of modernity may have eaten away at historic Christianity, but more recently they have also attacked the Enlightenment faith. Christianity has been purged of some undesirable accretions during the ordeal, but its rival has probably been damaged beyond repair. Reflect further on some of the tenets of the latter and ask, where are now its votaries? Futurism, the gospel of unimaginable progress? Scientism, belief in the messianic potential of science, democracy, faith in the omniscience of majorities, socialism, utopia by means of political ownership. Who now defends these dogmas? They still have their partisans, true, but they gain few recruits. Christianity, on the other hand, is resurgent, not always widely so perhaps, but it is at any rate alive enough to challenge the ablest contemporary minds. It fared badly under the shallow optimism which reigned last century because Christianity is a religion of hard answers. It is not called into play when men are content with glib answers to soft questions. It partakes of the tragic view of life. Henry Adams ironically remarked that his contemporaries had, quote, solved the universe, end quote. Christianity is not for the likes of these. But today's crisis is religion's opportunity. Life again confronts men with paradox, uncertainty, dilemma and catastrophe. The smooth facade is dented and breached. Man tries to play God and fails to secure even a niche for himself in any pantheon. The homemade heaven he tries to fashion on earth in totalitarian lands resembles an old-fashioned hell. He aspires to the role of deity and reverts to subhumanity. Perhaps if men attempt a more modest role to become truly human, we may, with God's help, make it. But such a choice as this demands an individual commitment. 
Before we seek for better answers, let alone hard answers, we must start to ask the right questions. In this respect, each of us needs all the help he can get, and he can get help from the right books, such as the present volume. This book will not find favour with professional educationists, nor with those who reject the author's religion, but even many churchmen, regrettably, are more at home with sentimentality than hard, rigorous thinking. They will be uncomfortable with the way this book challenges them to re-examine things that have been taken for granted. Many churchmen are disturbed because the Bible may no longer be read in the so-called public schools, but how many acknowledge the inevitability of the secularist trend in tax-supported and politically controlled schools? The state is secular. In a free society, the alternative being some form of caesaropapism. It follows that wherever government gets into the education business, whether at local or national levels, Influence will tend to secularize the schools. The churches respond to this challenge by offering release time religious instruction and by establishing at a progressive rate their own weekday schools. Laudable as are these efforts, it is feared that, in all too many cases, parochial and private schools operate with the same theories of education as tax-supported institutions. Hence the importance of the present book, a penetrating closely reasoned study which starts from Christian premises and exhibits easy familiarity with the vagaries of current educational theory. Mr. Rushdoony espouses a biblical faith based on a consistent and rigorous Calvinism. Does this lessen the value of this book for those who come from other traditions within Christendom? Not at all in my judgments, speaking as one whose ties are with the traditions of liberal congregationalism. I'm not sure that I see eye to eye with Mr. Rushdoony on every point, and I might employ a different vocabulary in places, but basically we both speak the same language. Doctrinal differences, in short, are compatible with dogmatic accord. Before we can discuss the nature of education intelligently, we must have come to some understanding of the nature of man. Soviet schooling, with its emphasis on scientific and technological instruction, reflects the Marxian understanding of human nature. Whatever else we say about the Marxian view of man, we must certainly admit that it falls short in every dimension of the Christian view of man, a creature created by God for fellowship with himself. If the Christian view of man's nature and destiny is our premise, we cannot possibly agree that even a superbly trained engineer is a finished educational product. We need lots of engineers in modern society, and good ones are to be preferred to those less highly skilled. But engineering is in the realm of means, and the critical question concerns the ends to be served by these means. It's fine that we constantly improve our means, but unless we simultaneously improve our ends, we generate a conflict by hitching too much power to too little purpose. Quote, Power is never a good, end quote, Alfred the Great observed, quote, except he be good that has it, end quote. It would further the interests of clarity if we could use the word training to describe the instruction that has to do with means, or instrumental knowledge, reserving the word education for that which has to do with ends, or formative knowledge. 
Instruction in instrumental knowledge is not education, although it is part of education and useful in its own right. It is needful that men possess such skills as the ability to lay bricks, cut hair, add figures, perform experiments in physics and chemistry, write books and preach sermons. But while the possession of such skills is desirable and important, their exercise is not the distinctive mark of an educated man. It is true, however, that an educated man ought to have a quiverful of such and similar talents and be able, like Jefferson, quote, to calculate an eclipse, survey an estate, tie an artery, plan an edifice, try a cause, break a horse, dance a minuet and play the violin, end quote. But this is merely to say that a man ought to be trained as well as educated. The so-called public school system in the United States stems mainly from the 19th century and partakes of the dubious philosophy of that time and subsequent periods. As a system of instruction supported by taxation and compelling attendance, it was bound to veer towards secularism and statism, but other inherent defects were apparent as well. Late last century, the astute French critic Ernest Renan observed that, quote, Countries which, like the United States, have set up considerable popular instruction without any serious higher education, will long have to expiate their error by their intellectual mediocrity, the vulgarity of their manners, their superficial spirits, their failure in general intelligence. End quote. In the 20th century, compulsory government schooling got its philosopher, John Dewey, quote, The educational process, end quote, as viewed by this influential teacher, quote, has no end beyond itself, end quote. Education is, quote, vital energy seeking opportunity for effective exercise, end quote. The Dewey philosophy is pragmatic, experimental and instrumentalist, not advanced tentatively for argument and debate, but insisted upon dogmatically as the only permissible point of view. Ayel Kandel, professor of education emeritus, Teachers College, Columbia University, writes, end quote, school and society, end quote, consequences of the cult of pragmatism, experimentalism, or instrumentalism is regarded as almost committing sacrilege, end quote. But now it is admitted on all sides that the sacred cow is out of sorts. There is something wrong with our system of education because there is something wrong with our theory of education, and we won't correct our system until we straighten out our theory. But this we cannot even begin to do unless we know what is normative. We really do know, as a matter of fact, but we need to be reminded that the norms are Christian imperatives. It is Mr. Rushdoony's accomplishment to remind us in terms we are not likely to forget. Reverend Edmund A. Optiz, Foundations for Economic Education, Irvington on Hudson, New York, October the 28th, 1960. Chapter 1 The School and the Whole Person Contemporary educational theorists have much to say about educating the whole child and dealing with the total needs of the person. Theoretically, it seems the most desirable process, but on reflection, both the goal and the process appear to have very dangerous implications. Consider, for example, this comment by Helmut Schuch, quote, 
Last year, I had a talk with the director of teacher education in one of our universities. This jovial gentleman confided his greatest worry to me. You know, our graduates, after four years of indoctrination in our program, go out from here with pretty much the same attitudes they had when they came as freshmen. I really think we ought to get permission to electroshock them. End quote. While too much cannot be read into this observation, neither can it be bypassed. The remark shook, quotes, is after all a common one. Its equivalent heard on many a college campus. Whether stated facetiously or with an irritable weariness, it does betray a concept of education which is rarely recognised as basic to the modern mind. To understand modern educational theory, it is important to recognise the impact of John Locke. Locke's influence was twofold, both as an educational theorist and as the founder of modern psychology, through which he has had a continuing influence. It was important to Locke, as a zealous champion of the Enlightenment and a forerunner of empiricism, to eliminate the effect of the past and wipe out any concept of the mind that would leave innate ideas or any stock of ideas to the individual. Accordingly, he gave to the Enlightenment its ideal weapon against God in the past, the concept of the mind as a blank sheet of white paper. Although not entirely new, the idea received its influential formulation from Locke. The mind begins life without any burden from the past. It is like a white paper without any markings. All its ideas are empirically aroused. The mind is free and nothing can exist in it that is not first in the senses. Thus, the mind cannot create ideas, they are received as impressions, then compounded and translated. The mind is thus essentially passive and receptive, although Locke at times speaks of it contradictorily as active and free. The essential passivity of the mind is apparent in that no true explanation of the self was possible for Locke. It was simply an, quote, internal infallible perception that we are, end quote, an unexplained and soon-eroded concept in later thinking of the Enlightenment. The marvels of this theory for educators of the Enlightenment are immediately apparent. Man was able to remake man and the educator to play the role of a god. The hated and despised past could be cancelled out and man be given, in effect, a new inheritance. No modern goal in education is understandable except in terms of this hope of the Enlightenment. Education thus involved a war against the past, and two of the most monstrous aspects of man's past were Calvinism and Scholasticism, against which all men of intellect must make war. For the Enlightenment, quote, education, end quote, became a veritable mania, a magical concept which was the cure-all for all problems social, ethical and economic. Education would produce universal brotherhood and a paradise on earth, freedom and happiness for all. Pestalozzi translated much of this into practice with his educational techniques and methods. Lessing, Herder and others attacked patriotism in the name of cosmopolitanism. All lesser divisions than the world were frowned upon. A thing to be true had to be universal and valid for all men. An aristocratic concept such as predestination was untenable. Authority and tradition were inevitably wrong, and rebellion against them the duty of intelligence. Accordingly, the static 
as universal, and the rational as against the realistic, were exalted and made basic to all human activity and philosophy. In terms of this, the Enlightenment developed also the concept of necessary ideas, things necessary in and of themselves. Not every facet of the Enlightenment is of importance to us in this context. The concept of the mind as a clean tablet was very quickly exploded as a psychological reality, but it remained as an ideal It became the ideal concept undergirding the idea of revolution. History was to be wiped out by revolution, a clean tablet affected, and history begun anew. This concept dominated all thinking in the French Revolution and extended itself to the point of beginning again in the reckoning of time. It was basic to the thinking of the anarchists, Marxists, such as Lenin and others, and still underwrites all revolutionary expectancy and post-revolutionary cynicism. It has been basic to all utopian thinking. Again, it has provided the ideal for scientific thinking. The true scientist ostensibly wipes his mind free of all preconceptions and approaches his subject with a clean tablet mind, ready to see and interpret the facts in and of themselves. This scientific attitude is one of the great myths of modern times. That the scientist actually approaches his subject with a variety of axioms of thought and pre-theoretical and religious presuppositions, Herman Deweyward and Cornelius van Til have amply shown. His clean tablet mind is actually free only of the attitudes the Enlightenment rebelled against. Preconceptions being identified with Calvinism and Scholasticism. Instrumentalism is another expression of the same basic concept and assumes that it alone possesses the ability to attain true knowledge because it alone is ostensibly free of preconceived ideas in approaching factuality. This is again a mythical faith and an impossibility. The instrumentalist is also guilty of extensive and basically religious presuppositions which provide the unconscious axioms of all his thinking. But, more pertinent to our concern, the clean tablet concept has become the educational ideal. True education involves a ruthless wiping of the slate, cleaning it of all roots in the past and of all ideas and opinions not derived from the educational process. Indeed, some professors self-consciously and conscientiously employ a kind of shock therapy designed to jolt the student out of all preconceptions, wean him from the past, home, nation and religion, in order that the student can now truly pursue knowledge. The electroshock therapy idea is thus a fitting image for the clean tablet concept of education, and it is no wonder that more than one educator has ruefully considered it. As a result, the characteristic pattern of modern education becomes understandable, as does also the hostility of many people to education. Education and aiming at a clean tablet as the first step towards true education is inevitably productive of a radical rootlessness in the intelligentsia. And this, in the small town and rural areas where roots are often deepest, is strongly resented. The young man who went off to school with deep roots returns contemptuous of roots. The intellectual refuses to acknowledge the validity of the simplest conclusion unless it has been tested and established by his own processes. Accordingly, as long as there is any culture of vitality, 
there will be a strong resentment against such education only when such education has completely eroded all the cultural watersheds will the resentment disappear only to give way to the deluge indeed the resistance of many students to contemporary education is sometimes an indication of mental and cultural health such education is an unceasing war of attrition on all cultures and brooks no terms demanding unconditional surrender for purposes of annihilation it has implicit in it a tremendous pride we are the people wisdom was born with us and if we are not careful may die with us accordingly while compelled by its own research to grant that the home and the community are essential to the mental health of the whole man the home community and church are reduced to a non-cultural level in every intellectual way possible being limited to a basically emotional influence and none other in all matters of mind the initiative must lie with education and the scientific thinker such an approach is destructive however of every cultural agency including the home again culture is never the product of the clean tablet mind or of mind in isolation but of the whole man who has now been rendered schizophrenic and sterile by this educational concept the erosion of the cultural agencies was furthered by the concept of evolution in terms of very popular and influential developments of this concept the family religion and all smaller societal forms were relatively primitive forms in human evolution the culminating form of man's organized life being the cosmopolitan and ultimately world state the more primitive forms of organization had to be self-consciously outgrown at best they were to survive as subsidiary agencies of the state consider for example the opinion very influential in its day of Charles Leterno general secretary to the anthropological society of paris and professor of anthropology quote but this new collectivity will in no way be copied from the primitive clan whether it be called state district canton or commune its government will be at once despotic and liberal it will repress everything that would be calculated to injure the community but in everything else it will endeavor to leave the most complete independence to individuals our actual family circle is most often imperfect so few families can give or know how to give a healthy physical moral and intellectual education to the child that in this domain large encroachments of the state whether small or great are probable even desirable there is in fact a great social interest before which the pretended rights of families must be effaced in order to prosper and live it is necessary that the ethnic or social unit should incessantly produce a sufficient number of individuals well endowed in body heart and mind before this primordial need all prejudices must yield all egoistic interests must bend but the family and marriage are closely connected the former cannot be modified so long as the latter remains unchanged if the legal ties of the family are stretched while social ties are drawn closer marriage will have the same fortune for a long time more or less silently a slow work of disintegration has begun and we see it accentuated every day and quote such thinking was very far from extreme indeed one of the amazing facts of modern times is that the corrosive effects of evolutionary thinking on modern culture deadly as they have been have not been totally destructive of freedom and culture 
The evolutionary concept became the vehicle of every form of cultural hostility and antinomianism. As has been indicated of late, the home and other community groups have received a measure of rehabilitation in educational circles, but only in that they are essential to the emotional health of the individual. They cannot presume to extend their scope beyond that. Man, as thinker, must be cosmopolitan. His true home must be the one world and his family, humanity. Lesser loyalties are unhealthy and sickly loyalties if they are not outgrown. Another aspect of this clean tablet concept of education is that it is destructive of the very idea of education in that it is reduced to conditioning. The mind is regarded as essentially passive and hence best educated in terms of conditioning. Pavlov's experiment with the conditioning of dogs has not been fully accepted by contemporary educators, but Pavlov shared in common with educators certain concepts concerning the mind as essentially passive and susceptible to conditioning. The word educate, derived from the Latin a, out, duco, lead, means to bring out abilities and talents in the person and thus to develop him in terms of himself. This, too, is the biblical concept in part. As Keelan Delich translated Proverbs 22.6, Give to the child instruction conformably to his way, so he will not, when he becomes old, depart from it. But the clean tablet concept wants to do no such thing. It is not concerned with education, but radical recreation of the person beyond anything envisaged by religion. It is a radically messianic and religious program aiming at the recreation of man and his total culture. And yet, precisely because of its schizophrenic nature and its rootlessness, it is unable to create culture. The total contribution of the university, for example, to modern culture is very limited and, in spite of itself, against its own principles. Its greatest single contribution has perhaps been the underlying work behind the atom bomb, a fitting symbol of its educational theory. By contrast, let us examine briefly one aspect of the education against which the Enlightenment rebelled, Calvinistic or Reformed education as manifested in the Pilgrims and Puritanism contemporaneously with the Enlightenment. The Puritans were not past-bound in that they did not look back to any past state, but sought rather to create a new order. They were, however, past-bound from the viewpoint of the Enlightenment in that they held to the infallible word, the once-for-all and full revelation of the Bible. They looked to the future, but refused to be chained to it. Thus, the communism of the pilgrims was quickly dropped when it failed. But, most important of all for our concern, education was a major interest, but on radically different presuppositions. New light was yet to break forth from the infallible word. New developments of society in terms of the fundamental faith were to be manifested. Basic to education were two religious concepts, the covenant and confirmation. Confirmation, a common Christian practice, had stronger roots often in other groups, but the covenant concept was strongest among Calvinists and far more important in terms of education. The theological aspects of the doctrine of the covenant are not our concern here, although they do have extensive sociological implications. 
but two aspects of the covenant immediately concern us. The covenant of grace was a covenant of life and with promise. Man's very hope in terms of fulfillment and enjoyment, in terms of participation in the richness of life and community, was in terms of the covenant. Education was thus inevitably a covenantal act, an incorporation of the person into the life of a rich and vital body, an indoctrination to its past, and a participation in its present and future life and power. The covenant, however, was not static. It was a covenant with promise, both for this life and the life to come. In terms of this life, for example, it looked to the beating of swords into plowshares, the earth filled with, quote, the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, end quote, Isaiah 11.9, and the time when life expectancy will be such that, quote, the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed, and they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord, their offspring with them, end quote, Isaiah 65.20-21 and 23. This was believed to be the promise of an absolute God who cannot lie. It was taught, for example, in the last century at Princeton by the great Joseph Addison Alexander. Covenant theology was a doctrine of salvation, a plan of conduct, and a philosophy of history as well as the foundation of education. Thus, education was an inevitable concern, and it was seen not as a break with the community and a separation of the intellectual from the peasant, but an aspect of the image mandate within the framework of the covenant. Education, as an aspect of the covenantal life, could not see itself as called to foster rootlessness, but to implement the covenant's development of its life and promises. It did not function to sever home ties, for example, but to confirm them. In that, it worked to develop more fully man's knowledge, righteousness, holiness and dominion in terms of every aspect of life. It was thus concerned with the development of a godly scholarship and godly youth who would also be godly sons and daughters now and husbands, wives and parents tomorrow. Confirmation was full adoption into the inheritance from the past and the promises of the future. Emancipation was into the forms of culture and life and not from them. Of these, the state was but one. Cosmopolitanism was not an ideal Rather, it was a major sin in that it involved the offence of the Tower of Babel, a commonality in which the covenant of grace was destroyed in favour of an indifference to good and evil, a proscription of character and merit in favour of wickedness and sloth, and a rebellion against the primacy of faith in favour of a meaningless and dangerous unity. It was a concept they opposed religiously, and hence the Westminster Confession did not hesitate together with the Reformers, to identify the Church of Rome with the Whore of Babylon and the Papacy with the Man of Sin. They opposed it also politically, and the lingering elements of Puritanism in the United States today are usually the areas of hostility to internationalism and the United Nations. Thus, between the two concepts of education, the Calvinistic and that of the Enlightenment and contemporary thought, there can be no compromise they are in hopeless contradiction. The modern concept, with its cosmopolitanism and its clean tablet ideal, is erosive and destructive of all aspects of culture except the monolithic state, 
which is then the ostensible creator and patron of culture. When it speaks of the whole child, it speaks of a passive creature who is to be moulded by status education for a concept of the good life radically divorced from God and from all transcendental standards. The goal of such education will only be reached when man ceases to be man. And this being an impossibility, the only outcome of such education can be the increasing resistance of the child to its radical implications. Modern education, thus, is statist education. And the state is made the all-embracing institution of which all other institutions are but facets. The state and the person, government and individual, become thus the two realities of such a worldview. Both demand freedom and power for themselves. The state recognises no law beyond itself, and the individual insists on his own autonomy and ultimacy. But the child of the state, being a man without faith, has no vital principle of resistance, and thus, even in his rebellion, is statist. Every philosophy of autonomous man from the Greeks to the present has foundered on the problem of the one and the many, universality and particularity. If the one be affirmed as the ultimate reality, the individuals are swallowed up in the whole. If the many be affirmed, then reality is lost in endless particularity and individuality, and no binding concept has any reality. Thus, the one and the many are in perpetual tension. The individual and the state, for example, can only each affirm themselves at the expense of the other. As against this, the consistent Christian philosophy as developed by Calvinistic thinkers such as Cooper, Bavinck and Cornelius van Til, by beginning with the biblical revelation and the ontological trinity, begins thereby with the equal ultimacy and the fundamental congeniality of the one and the many in the Trinity, three persons, one God. The concept of the covenant furthers this unity in that the self-realization of the individual is the advantage of all and is advanced by and integral with the self-realization of others. In the modern conception, the fulfilment and self-realization of the individual are at the expense of others and may involve their sacrifice. For the Orthodox Christian, self-realization apart from the covenant is an impossibility and it involves life in an organism, the true body of Christ. This latter concept, the body of Christ, asserts emphatically in varying functions and callings as individuals who are yet part of a common whole. The service of the body requires the fulfilment of the individual. The eye must fulfill itself as an eye, that the entire body as well may prosper. Covenantal education is this education which is not at odds with itself and the nature of man. It has been accused of being no more than, quote, mere indoctrination, end quote, but indoctrination is, after all, no more than teaching in terms of principles, and the teaching of principles. Covenantal education is that, and much more. but. It is definitely not conditioning, nor can it be, for it holds man to be not a passive and blank object, nor a creature of the state, but God's vicegerent, created in his image and called upon to establish dominion over all creation and over himself. This calling, with its responsibilities and consequences, no electroshock concept of education can alter or remove. 
If you enjoyed this episode, check out the full book as well as more from RJ Rush Dooney on Canon Plus. Just click the link in the show notes to start listening today.